0: or continuing on with the first epistle of John, remembering that John basically wrote all of his stuff, everything, his epistles and the Gospel of John, as an answer to what was heresies that were coming up in the church of Gnosticism. Basically, everything John wrote was, in one way or another, with the exception of Revelation, everything he wrote was an answer to something that was going on at the time. Like, in the sense that the beginning, the first chapter where he talks about uh, that, you know, that you're, I'm coming here talking to you about things that I personally saw with my own eyes, Whereas if people are then are starting to say, because it's been quite a while, as soon as this happens, as soon as you get far enough away from an event to where people who are, aren't alive and saw it, people immediately start to question it. Well, did it really happen? Can we really know? That only happens when you put time between the event and that. Well, he's here John is in his late 80s, early 90s, and... He's saying, I'm still here. <laughs> I still saw it. This is something that, we, that we've seen, that we know it happened. And I'm, and basically, he's bearing witness that the other writings and the other apostles were correct. It's sort of like how Jesus said that uh, you need somebody to bear witness of you. So if you say something, you need another a second person to second it, or else you can't really necessarily know that it's true. So he's bearing witness on them. Thing is, is John has a very... Because he's answering Gnosticism, which basically says that... <clears throat> it Actually, people think, it, 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 people will claim that Gnosticism doesn't see God, uh, Jesus as a God. It's actually the other way around, where Gnosticism doesn't see... It takes away Jesus' humanity. It makes him seem like he's just like a spirit that just is inhabiting this shell of a person. So he's really God, or a spirit, or one of the gods, and it takes away his humanity quite a bit. So, like, if you read the Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, which I'll talk about, the Gospel, there's like a, um, the Gospel of Judas, and there's one called the Infant Gospel of John, and there's all these other things. If you read these, it does away with God's, with Christ's humanity. Basically, in the Gospel of Thomas and Judas, Jesus is kind of a jerk. <laughs> He's very pointed. He's very sounds a little rude. He's making very strong comments about how women aren't as equal as men, and women have something wrong with them or just aren't effective. Those are all the Gnostics. Those are the, the the whenever somebody talks about the Gospel of Thomas or they'll see banned from the Bible, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas or whatever these are. There's quite a few writings. The Gnostics wrote a ton of these gospels. They even themselves didn't claim they were real. They acknowledge that they wrote them 150, 200 years after the people who they claimed wrote them died. But um, the thing is, is, it's weird because what happened is, basically some people found out about these things and they started writing novels about them. And you know how novels go, they're, they're fiction. So they're using a little piece of truth and making a whole fabrication. Well, people are looking at the novels and not looking at like the real documents. And the novels get it wrong, like the Da Vinci Code and stuff like that. They get it wrong. They just do. Because he's clearly making a point that the real true Christian followers were these Gnostics and the other church, the the, the Vatican, basically, the Catholics, came through and changed it. So, and again, they're doing it to where that. See, he wants to make it to where that he's... See, his point is, Dan Brown, the guy who wrote the Da Vinci Code, His point specifically was that Jesus was not thought of as God. He was just another person. He was a Messiah, one of many. And that, and so he writes the story based upon the fact that these hidden Gospels that we don't know about actually contain the truth that he was just a normal person. Lived a normal life, was married, had kids, all these things. The problem is is if you go read the things he's claiming, which are now all of them are in English. You can read them all in original languages or in English now all out there they're exactly the opposite what dan brown did was he just took names and created up a, made a fictional story about it because if you read it again jesus is very much the opposite jesus is just because again there's this whole pantheon of gods they believe there was like eight gods three male and four male and four female and they kind of like grouped together some were more great than others so they kind of like was stepped down some were lesser gods but they were all this pantheon, like this big group of gods. And basically, you had these bottom rung ones, who are the ones we we're kind of dealing with. Yahweh was the offspring of Sophia, but she didn't want to use her consort, Hermes, so she just made him up herself. That's why Yahweh is crazy, it's because he doesn't have a male part, because women are crazy. See, they're very, very they didn't like women very much. They very much demeaned women constantly um then they they used all the but they used all the christian terms they would claim the holy spirit the holy spirit was just another one of these divine beings they claim uh they used the term the logos which is why god which is the word which is why john uses the word to describe christ they would use christ as like as if it was a separate a whole separate person they would use all these terminologies and so basically what they were saying is that there is, Christ was one of the more higher-ups, and he came down to sort of fix all the problems that these lower gods had created. So, basically they saw it as that he was like this god, this spiritual being, that it just sort of went in to a person, and just used the body like as if it was a shell. Even so far as that when they show in like the Gospel of, uh, of Judas, when he's supposedly, Christ is on the, on the cross, the moment they start nailing him on the cross, it literally takes over to where it shows like the spirit of Christ standing on the other mountain watching it and talking with Judas and these other apostles. Like, and he's like making fun of the Romans going, ha, they think they're killing me. They're just killing a shell type of thing. So it actually, in reality, they made it to where God didn't have any humanity. Jesus didn't have any humanity. They thought he was just a God that, that was just pretending to be a person. Like so, he had no humanity. So, John, his entire thing is pointing out that Christ is both God and a person. He gives a lot of these clues. He doesn't have to do as much with the person part because, like Matthew and Mark, kind of show that part. Particularly Mark, Matthew, show him being God, being Christ, being a man. Like he cries, he has. He's sad, he, and he, he feels emotions. He's angry at times. But John is wanting to show that he's both. So John wants to show that he's both God and he's man, complete. So John has this very, they call it, a, it's a theology. He, he has a very strict theology that he walks, where he's constantly making the balance between God being, Christ being man and God, man and God. He's constantly talking about him being God, and then constantly showing him being a having human traits. So that's what, and all of John's writings is responding to this. The only difference you have is that you can tell sort of what's going on by some of the words he used. Like, you can tell when he wrote the Gospel of John, a lot of the people that were involved in that whole thing had died. So now all of a sudden he's naming names. He's saying people's names that like Matthew or Luke might just say, a certain person came to him. Now he's sitting there going, oh, Nicodemus came to him. Because Nicodemus has been dead for 40, 50 years. He's not going to be in trouble now. It, you know, It's like when people who worked, who were around back in the time of the Nazis and World War II, they don't say nothing then. All of a sudden, the 1980s, 1990s start stuff starts coming out. Why? Because those people are dead now. So you can talk about them because they're not going to get in trouble. So... It's, you know, enough time had come, so he's setting these things straight, and one of the things John's doing is he's naming names. He's saying, this guy did this, and that guy did that, and this person helped us, and that person helped us. So he really is setting things straight a lot and sort of confirming what some of the other Gospels say. Well, when the epistles come, you can tell the first epistle, they were still sort of in, they're being persecuted there's still some persecution cuz he, he he makes some comments about them having you know like gr- being grieved and that you know there's pain and you're going that you might die and see Christ soon the second and the third epistle you can tell that there was peace all of a sudden meaning that and what this was is if you go based upon when he lived john wrote this stuff during what an emperor called Diom- Diomitian's diometian's time diomitian murdered and slayed and he was putting people you know feeding them the lions When he died about a year after the first epistle was written, then all of a sudden John writes a second, third epistles. When he writes those, all of a sudden it's a little more happy. He's not talking about, oh, when you're martyred, oh, when you get... He's talking about, oh, it's you guys walk around freely type of stuff. So he's making these sorts of claims. So you can see John very much, again, was, was addressing what was going on at that moment in time. More than just a general sort of everything. So we see Jesus him making this point in the first about, about, you know, again, how that we have to walk and we have to really believe God is. Jesus was who he said he was. In the second one, we're going to see there's a lot more talking about the spiritual and how we how that works, how that applies. So in the second chapter, first verse, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. <clears> Two <throat> so says, and he is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So propitiation would probably be best. It's probably, it's hard to, that's a hard word to put into one word. Because propitiation, it, it means like atoning sacrifice, something that would, make you at one with God, (laughs) cover problems. So it's really, it's a a whole sentence into one word. But it's like atoning sacrifice. No, even that, the word atone was made by Tyndale. He actually created it because he's looking at a word in Greek, and he had no idea how to convey that meaning. There was no English words, no Latin words. He's going, man, what do I do? So he took the word at and the word one from the sentence at one with God, to be at one with God. And he took at and one and pushed them together, and we have atone. So that's where atone came from, is being at one with God. Meaning for at that moment, you're in harmony with God. So that's why Christ is the only one who can atone, because only through him we can ever be at one with God. But so propitiation is being atonement, being an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. This is one of my favorite verses because... Calvinists will argue with that, you know, their whole God only, Christ, Jesus only died for the elect. All right. Well, evidently John didn't meet John Calvin, so <laughs> he he wasn't able to be told that he was wrong by John Calvin. But uh, the thing is, is though we're we're going to jump back to Romans eight really fast. Romans eight, and the thirty second or thirty fourth verse. In the 34th verse, it says, and this goes with the fact of how that it talks about how that, you know, um, we have an advocate. Because in the 34th verse, it says, we'll start in 33, it says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So Jesus is the only one that makes intercession. The reason why Jesus makes intercession is because Jesus, literally the one who's going to do the judging is Christ, is Jesus. Because in, in John, Jesus says, My Father gave me the freedom to judge who I will. And then he says, and, you know, and whoever I judge, they shall be judged, and who I judge not, they'll be let go. So that's why he's able to do that, is because Christ Himself is the one who makes the judgment. Therefore, if he's the one who also is the atoning sacrifice, by believing in him, we don't have to face the judgment. Because he is both, and as Paul says, the the in Hebrews, he is the founder of our faith and he's the perfecter of our faith. He's both the end the beginning and the end result. So by doing that, that's the reason why he can make a propitiation. Because he's the one who's in control of the judgment. Okay. So, and likewise, there's, um, I guess we could go back to, because and, and this is the thing, we'll just real quick jump back to Leviticus. Because this is a, a thing that right now that's getting pushed around. I'm just going to point this out. Just, uh, it'd be the 16th verse, and I have to find it real quick. See where I know it's in there. 15th chapter of Leviticus and 10th verse. So 16th chapter 10th verse. Um, and what this is, is this is where, how that in the second verse he says, uh, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is a term that's called scapegoating. And so Leviticus 16 verse 10 says, but the goat, on which the fell, on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with Him, and let Him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. So, what they would do is back in this time, when it was time to make an atoning for their sins, everybody would pray their sins, a tabernacle with God, they do all these things, and they would take a red string and they would tie it around a goat's like ear or horn, and then they would take, and they would basically they're saying they put all of their sins upon this this animal, and then they release it out into the wilderness to, to be carried away from them, so that it would be taken away, and they don't have to deal with it anymore for the next year. And it's called scapegoating. It's a scapegoat. And that is what Christ is. That's the reason why Christ is the atoning lamb, is he is essentially a scapegoat. We're putting all of our sins on him, And he took the punishment. For in this case, the goat, it was to be let out in the wilderness to where he wouldn't be a part of the pack anymore. And for Christ, of course, it was taking our punishment on the cross. So, but that it is a thing, it's scapegoating. And the reason why I point that out is because a lot of there's a big thing right now in uh, churches and stuff, and and really in Christianity, acting like the scapegoating thing isn't like a legitimate concept. They'll make all kinds of. Well, scapegoating, that was a common thing back in the time, but that's not really why. It is true that in the Bible, it says Christ died to conquer death and hell. It says that. But it also says he's a propitiation. He is the one who makes the atonement through his sacrifice. So both are true at the same time. It's not either or. People will make you think that either he died for our sins or he died so that he could conquer death and hell so that we don't have to deal with it both are true simultaneously again that's one of those things where people want to argue about it so they kind of put up a fake either or and oftentimes if people two people are arguing about something in the bible it's probably in there for some reason it's just exactly what that means you know sometimes you have to read it in context to see what it means but yeah, he is. De- it's so Christ is definitely the scapegoat. He's the one that which we put our burdens on, our sins on, and He takes them away. So starting in uh, the back into John, First Epistle, John, Second Chapter, Third Verse, it says, "And hereby we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith I know Him and keeps not His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him." Uh, but whosoever keeps his word in, uh, keeps his word in him verily is the love of God perfected, whereby know we that we are in him, that he that saith he abides in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked see, and this is another one of these things where an issue with. And it's kind of funny how it goes, but an issue with the Gnostics is the Gnostics would be closer to what we think of as like the what, holiness churches that say you have to like become perfect. And so, a lot of the preachers at this time in John's time were really pushing again, not necessarily the law, but pushing just different practices and different codes of conduct, saying that well, if we can't tell how you live, if we can't tell how you live. And so one of the things about that is that usually, and this is a weird thing, but usually if people are pushing like holiness doctrines and you have to like do a certain number of good things, it will eventually come out in their life that they're not living the way they tell you they are. It's just going to. And Paul pushed that out very, talked about that a lot. Because he would say, these people are not living the way they're telling you. Paul would say it over and over again in Galatians. He'd say it all over, over and over again. Titus, in the first chapter, he talks about, um he says, they profess they know God, but by their works, they do not know him. And they're taught, he's talking about the leaders of these churches who are coming in and making all these grandiose claims. But if you were at home with them, you would know that they don't believe what they're saying. So this is one of these situations where John's saying, don't follow people, follow Christ. You know, if, if a guy's saying this or making a grandiose claim or saying that, you know, you have to follow these certain things or these certain, just do the commandments of Christ. That's what you have to worry about. Christ is the only one you have to pay attention to. So in 7, we see that uh it says, um, Brethren, I write, No new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shines. So what he's saying is, he's basically saying, the commandment has always been the same. He's saying, you know, do as Christ said. What did Christ say? Love God, love other people. He's saying that's nothing new. There's nothing new to that. That's what it was always. However, he's saying the way we're telling you, we're you we're saying it in a different way. Why? Well, because Christ has come. In the past, the law was kind of like a babysitter. So they said it in such a way, do not sin, you know, do not kill, do not all these different laws like that. Now we're saying because we have Christ as an example, we're just tell, saying it in a new way. Even though we're saying it in a new way, it's still the old wall. It just sounds new because we're saying it in a new way. And that's the easiest I can <laughs> explain that because John does have a few lines here and there where he'll say something. He's not like Paul in that sense that he'll make a comment and then the very next comment sounds like he's contradicting. But what he's doing is he's using contrast to say, Sometimes Paul will use rhetorical devices. Or like somebody will say, Well, I'm not saying this. And he goes, But even if I said that, it would still be true. <laughs> you know, that's that's true sometimes. Somebody will say, God says you shouldn't jump off thousand-foot cliffs. Did God say that? No, but even if he didn't say it, it's still a true statement, type of. You know what I mean? It's still a st- true statement. <laughs> it's like. So it's, you know, even if he didn't say it, it's still true. So Paul will use devices like that. John is not quite so, John's not as intelligent as Paul was. Paul was a very brilliant guy. John was more of a farm boy, you know, type, type guy. He used more exact language. So starting in verse 9, he says, He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and knows not whither he goes, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. See, this is another one of these situations where we see that, you know, John is, in this he's alluding back to... Jesus, when he talks about the blind leading the blind, that you have people who are not really, they don't believe what they're saying, they're walking in darkness, they don't understand. One reason they don't understand, because true Christ if you really believed what you were reading, you would read the Old Testament and see me, but you don't believe it. Therefore, you're blind. You're blind to what's really going on, but you, instead of accepting that you're blind, you're trying to lead other people. And if a blind man leads another blind, they're both going to fall into a ditch. So John is saying the same thing in that if you are keep claiming that you love people, but you hate people, then you really have to watch out because you're being blinded. You're being blinded to yourself. You're being blinded to who you are. There's a lot of people that I think think they're doing the right thing, but they're blind to themselves. One of the hardest things to do in life is to look in the mirror you know, rhetorically speaking, and see, truly see yourself. Sometimes you see yourself, you might even say, well, I see all my faults, but sometimes you see your faults almost in an exaggerated form. You see like all the things you hate about yourself, but you may not necessarily see yourself how you really are, which means that you might actually be looking over something that you might have to work on because you're so fixated on this other thing. And that one thing you're fixated on, other people might not even care. (laughs) It might not even be an important thing to them. They could care less about what it is. But, you know, you're, you're fixating on it. And so it ends up being a situation where, you know, it ends up being a hard thing for a person to take self-inventory. Uh, real quick, we're going to jump to First Peter in second chapter, which is only going to be like two or three pages to the left from where you are. And the 21st verse. And this is another part of that where just how that, if you look at, even though John has his own theology, the reason why I'm including this is that it's consistent throughout the whole Bible. And that is things like this to where John says about, you know, making, about how do you keep your eyes on Christ. Don't be blinded to yourself. And in First Peter 2.21, 21, um, Uh, and it also talks about, how, you know, for uh, even here unto, uh, even here unto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. So you see, we have that the thing where, you know, we should, we should follow in his steps. We should uh, make an attempt to to do what he does and not worry about what the rest of the world does. And even this, where, like, if somebody will tell you, well, John has a different philosophy or theology than the other apostles. He doesn't. He It's very consistent. They're both pointing to the same thing. They're just saying it in different ways. So, again, even though John has a very, he's writing for a very specific reason, his philosophy is no different. His theology is no different than the rest of them. He's just, that's his point. He's making a certain point. Because it is what it is. They, these people were writing in a time to a certain group of people. Starting in 12, we're going to continue. And this is talking. We're going to be talking about the spiritual state of the people that he's talking to. So, and then First John 2:12 it says, "I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for you in His name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known Him that is from the beginning." I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. So, and this is another one of these... It's a colloquial type of thing to where he puts it every single way. He's saying, I'm writing to the children, and these are not like adults and children. These are talking like spiritually minded. He's saying, I'm talking to the new believers. I'm writing to, you know, he's basically saying, I'm writing to the new believers to let you know that you can stop worrying because your sins are forgiven. I'm writing unto you fathers, meaning the older people who are knowing there, saying that, you know, don't lose faith here towards the end. Don't. Get, don't get discouraged because he's the same God who you knew from the beginning. He's saying, I write unto you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. He's saying, okay, t- keep going. You know, because when you're in that middle age area, you're getting older to where you know, but you're still young enough to be susceptible to things that you kind of get over as you get older. And so he's saying, you know, keep going, keep going, keep working for it. You know, he's saying, you've overcome the wicked one. And then he's saying, "I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father." So again, he's saying, he's telling the little kids, "Don't worry, just keep looking to God." I write unto you, fathers, because you have known Him. This from the beginning. He's saying that's another way of saying you've known the Son, meaning Christ. He's saying so again. He's saying, "I'm writing to you because I know that I can trust you with this message." And he's saying, "And I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong." And the word of God abides or lives in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So again, he's telling the ones in the middle, keep going; it'll get better. Keep going. So 15 says, <clears throat> "Love not the world. Love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world." The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. So, uh, this is again one of these situations where, if we jump back to Romans 12, Going to see, and Romans twelve the second verse. It talks about how that he's saying you're know, not to love the things of the world, but that's one of the most difficult things is because we do we want to live love the things of the world, and it says you know in twelve two it says and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that what is good and acceptable and perfect will of god so and he's saying don't make yourself out to look like the people around you but instead let the real thing that's inside come out well what's the real thing that's inside the holy spirit we don't want to be like the rest of the world we want to let the holy spirit work on us and work its way out and i also just want to point out that and this is just a kind of an interesting thing, an interesting anecdote but go back to genesis in the third chapter Genesis in the third chapter. It's all the way back to the beginning. So in this he says, about, he says, for all that is in the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And third verse of in the third chapter of uh, of uh, Genesis, in the sixth verse, it says, "And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat." Even back then, that first sin. It was a lust of the eyes. It was a lust of the eyes because it looked appealing. It looked good. She saw that it was good. She saw that it looked desiresome. And then, the same thing, the pride. It made one to be like God. A, proud, a sense of wanting to boast oneself up higher than one should. So that is essentially the first, one of the first sins. When you look at it, the first sin has to do with having a lust, not just of the flesh but of the eyes, of literally seeing what's in the world and wanting what you see. Because it's one thing to have it in your mind. The theater of the mind is what it is. It's a battleground. But the eyes, what comes in through the eyes, it goes in and it has the ability to where that if you want what's out there, it has the ability to corrupt. It really does. So, again, it's one of those things where I like to point that out because that's one of those situations where people kind of, they'll do that, it kind of goes along that whole thing. of I can do whatever I want, I can watch whatever I want, I can see whatever I want. Well, yeah, if you're incredibly strong-willed, you're probably sure you can. <laughs> but the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh, you know, it's not just what's in your mind. It's also what's coming in through the eyes that, that will that will make you... They will will spoil you. So, in the 18th verse of John, I'm going to go back to the Epistle of John, second chapter, 18th verse, it says, Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. And I just want to point out to that real quick that the concept of antichrist is we always think of anti as in, like, as in like the opposite of, whatever, antifreeze. So instead of something freezing, it's not freezing. The word anti is actually anta in the Greek, and it literally so it's a direct translation. It actually means in place of, which is actually a good example for why we put antifreeze in there, because if you put water in there, it would freeze. But antifreeze in there because it's in place of the water won't freeze. So it's actually, it's in place of. So this is where it says we've, the Antichrist, the Antichrist is to be in place of Christ. He's going to hold himself up for Christ. But he says we also see there are many Antichrists, I mean, many people that would take the place of Christ in the world, even in his time. And I have to believe that he's taught referring to more or less false teachers, cult leaders, people like that. When he's saying that. So, yeah, Antichrist, it's a tough thing. So when you read the Bible, if you read it on your own, and you see that, try to parse out what Antichrist is in reference to. Don't just always think that it's referring to an, a person in the sense that, you know, it says there's many Antichrists Antichrist because it's a spirit, essentially. It's a spirit of wanting to put yourself in the place of God. So 19th verse says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have—they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Again, so he's talking about a specific group of people. This is one of these situations where it's a very noble way, but what John is doing here is he's calling somebody out. He's doing one of those things where he's going, I'm not going to call you by name, but you know who you are. (laughs) That's what he's doing. I'm not going to say who you are by name, but you know who you are. Because they left us, they were with us, now they're against us. Had they stayed with us, they would have really been with God. But since they're against us, they're not. And so people knew who this was. And of course, the people who don't know, don't need to know. Kinda, of. it's kinda of what it, where outworks. Um, but yeah, he's, he, this is a very, it's not passive aggressive in the sense that he's straight saying it. But again, he, this is what he's doing. He's talking to people that were a part of a group that he set up, that John set up of the church that are now going out and creating false churches and cults and stuff. So we'll continue in the 20th verse. It says, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and he know all things. Uh, an um people who have a newer translation or the New King James, it'll say anointing. And that's what it is. Unction, it's exactly what it is. It's ointment being rubbed on in a medical form. That's kind of what the word means. Like like you'd rub a balm or an ointment or something like that on. It's at the past tense of the action of rubbing, so the actions of anointing. So, it is, it's it's anointing, but they use the term unction. It only appears like three or four times in the whole Bible. Um, But so it says, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, meaning God, and ye know all things. I have written, I have written unto you because ye know not, because ye know not the truth. It says, I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. See, this is one of these things where, and if, we're not going to go there, but in Proverbs 20, 28, um, Proverbs 28, five, it says, uh, Evil men do not understand justice, but they that seek the Lord understand all. So, this is one of these situations where this is the case. And it's, we see it all every day, where people will make, you know, people read the Bible, so, oh, I read the Bible. So that, and it's like, you can just, it's the craziest thing, but clearly because they don't have the Holy Spirit, they can sit there and read it and it just makes no sense. It makes no, then what they're saying, they get it and you're looking at it going, I have no idea how you got that <laughs> out of there. None. And so, that's what's going on here, is he's saying, you know, I have not written unto you because you don't know the truth. He's saying, I write unto you because you know the truth. So, you know, and this is that thing where John's saying, I'm not accusing you guys of falling away because I know you know the truth. But that's also why you don't have an excuse. you do not an excuse to fall into these traps because you know. You do. You, you, you know what, what the right thing is. Um, If we see, if we continue in the 22nd uh, verse, it says, Who is a liar? But he that denieth Lord Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son has the Father also. This is a direct relation to his own writing. When in John 5, when John wrote in John 5, he says that, uh, that, um, Jesus is quoted as saying, that uh, all that may honor the son, just as they honor the father. And whoever does not honor the son, does not honor the father who sent him. And so again, he's saying he, this is he's talking to Jewish people specifically. And he's saying, you guys should know better. You should know that I was going to come, but you don't. Why? Because you're not. You're, you're not. You don't honor the father, so there's no way you can honor the son. So he's. It, the point is, is not that it's not just that they're denying Christ as being Christ, but they still know about God. He's making the point that they don't know about God either. Because if they knew about God, then they would accept the Son. They would accept Christ if they knew about God. So, somebody who will say, and this goes to that whole thing when people will say, well, Jewish people are, can be, are saved in spite of not believing in Christ because they're chosen or whatever. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> because, John, because in John 5, Jesus says very clearly about that bit, if you guys were truly believing God, then you would believe me. And you'd follow me. But clearly, you don't believe God. So, if they don't believe God, they're not going to heaven. That's just the way it is. So, you know, it's, I wish they would. I wish they could. I, you know, it makes me sad that anybody's gonna not go to heaven. You know, I hear people say that sometimes, they're like, oh, this person or that person, you know, about them going to hell. And I'm like, I've thought about it before, and I really don't, I don't think I want anybody, even like people I don't like. I don't want anybody going to hell because I've thought about it and it seems like a very rough thing indeed. So, starting in the 24th verse it says, uh, it says, Let there therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, Ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. So he's saying, and abide, we could easily say live or dwell. It's more like dwell, I guess, would be the word in our present day. So it's saying something that sort of like is present, ever present in you. So let something be ever present in you, that ye may that what you heard from the beginning. And he's talking not about the beginning of the world, he's talking about the beginning of your faith. So from the moment whatever you heard that got you saved. The thing that you heard got you saved. May that continue to dwell inside of you. That what you heard from the beginning shall remain in you. So he's saying, keep strengthening yourself. And he says, uh, ye shall, also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. Again, the problem is, and this is one of these weird things. There is this odd, this odd thing that runs through the Bible that, it both makes it clear that once you're saved, you're saved. But there was a lot of terminology that refers to like, like persisting to the end. Run your race to the end. Abide forever. Continue in the faith. Be strong in the faith to the end. There's a lot of that language that goes on. And so I have to believe, in spite of the fact that I have fought this battle for years with people, that I don't believe anybody loses their faith. Ever. Because you couldn't get, ch- get saved. So you can't lose your salvation. It can't happen. You kill, you, so they say that Christ is the only reason why you can get saved. Okay. And yet something you could do could get you unsaved. That's not possible because if, then you would never have gotten saved to begin with. You know, like if you could lose your salvation, you would lose it. It wouldn't be a case of how, it would just be a case of how long until you lost it. (laughs) That's the way we are. So we couldn't get it, get saved by ourselves. It had to be Christ's work. We can't save ourselves. But at the same time, there's nothing we can do to get outside to where we're not going to be saved anymore. But there is this abiding language. And I've studied it and studied it. And the best I can come up with the way that it is, because there's all kinds of people in the world that will say all kinds of things. There's a concept of Arminianism, and a lot of your Wesleyans and your Methodists and all this—they believe this sort of thing. And Nazarenes, they believe that you can give up your salvation. Essentially, you can be saved, and you can just say, "I'm, I'm not saved anymore. I don't believe it. I give it up." The issue with that is, if you read Hebrews six, it says those who—it talks about how those who took part in the glory of God, who experienced the glory of the Holy Spirit. Experience the workings, and it says, "and give it up." Basically, they are very hard to ever come back to the faith. So people say, "Well, right there, they gave it up." The thing is, is I have to believe more of that. I believe that when Wesley, John Wesley, says there's a process to getting saved, I think he's kind of right in the sense that usually what happens is we hear it. And it kind of goes in, and whether you're a little kid or an adult, it sits, and it, what happens is it just makes you just sit uneasy. You sit very uneasy and very uncomfortable. And it saturates in, and eventually it works on you in such a way, the Holy Spirit keeps trying to messing with you and tugging on you, and you like, like if your heart's, if you think your heart like, like, you know, like a hard clay, he keeps working that clay, trying to get it to soften. And then all of a sudden, there's sort of like an instant where there's a, there's a moment in time where you kinda just make the decision, do I believe or don't I? And you might even not really be able to pinpoint exactly when it was, but you'll really know that there will be a time when you say, basically from this point on, I've always believed. Even if you don't, there wasn't an exact moment where you say, because I know people who've walked down the aisle and said, that was the moment I got saved. I know people who didn't. I know people will say, when did you get saved? I'll be like. Sometime in the summer when I was like 13, it just sort of, by the end of the summer, I just believed. (laughs) Like they can't even pinpoint, it just sort of happened. So I have to believe that's because it was working on them, and it was in there, and the Holy Spirit was just working. And eventually they just sort of, it wasn't as dramatic. The difference is for that person, it wasn't as dramatic, they just sort of believed. It just sort of went away. The block that was blocking them from believing just kind of went away. Other people, it's more dramatic. It's more of a, it's a struggle. You make, finally, it's like, <clears throat> okay. And it's like, it just, you know, now you're like knocking that wall down and it's more dramatic, but I don't think everybody experiences that. And so I have a feeling that what they're referring to is people who, if they heard it, they say, oh, that seems great. And they get involved. And the whole time, there's still doubt there. You know they don't really quite believe. They think they might, they don't quite understand it. A lot of times a lot of people don't understand it. And then somebody starts teaching them wrong, or they start seeing people doing things, and all of a sudden they're kind of like, you know, I've been here for five years, I've been doing this. I just, no, I'm just, no, I'm done. And they they leave. And I think that's what happens, Is what that's what they're talking about, is somebody who was working through the issues to where they would have suddenly believed. And now they've given up on that, that journey. And in the case like that, like it says in Hebrews 6 is that once they've done that though, it's really hard to get them back. It's really hard. Take a person who once was a Christian and went to college and got indoctrinated in something or tried to study the Greek manuscripts and suddenly said, wow, this is really tough. I don't think I like this anymore and left. They're usually pretty staunchly against it. They're usually not just, well, I don't believe anymore. They usually are pretty militant about it. And they'll never let another thought into their mind. The second it hits them, then no, 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 no. It's a lot harder to be close and to fall away than to have never been close and worked towards it. So I have a feeling, I feel that's what it is. It's that some people it takes longer for the spirit to work on them. And they might even come into church and look, seem like they're, seem like they're saved. And again, we can't judge this, so we don't know. But then all of a sudden, somewhere along the line, just before that decision time comes, they push it away. No, I'm not. So that's why he's talking about, you know, once you've seen the Son, once you've seen the Holy, you've felt the Holy Spirit, you've been working with God, stay in it. You know, continue in it. Let it abide in you. So he's saying, let it therefore abide in you what you heard in the beginning, meaning the beginning of your faith. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall continue in the Son and in the Father. See, it makes a lot more sense when you read it with that context, that it's saying some of you might not necessarily be saved yet, but you think you're you're opening up to it. Just continue. Just keep going. And it's going to open up eventually. So that's a lot of where I think that whole point goes, and why that's important uh, to do that. Now the 25th verse says, I'll start at 24, just in 3 through 25, just because, to see how it works. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye shall also continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, eternal life. See, so I have a feeling that's why, and I think that that's why verses when taken out of context can be rough. But together you see how it works. He's saying if you continue working towards this, even if you don't really believe yet, eventually it'll stick and eventually, what's the promise? It's eternal life. Um, John 10, 28 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, but no one can snatch them out of my hands. So, again, once you're saved, you're saved. But it's one of the things. It's Christ gives eternal life, and sometimes it's a process. You have to work towards it. And so, again, even though you're once saved, always saved, sometimes people, I don't think people are saved when they first walk down the aisle. I think sometimes they're just urged to, or they just had a feeling. But the Spirit didn't start, it's just the Spirit started working on them. And they want it, but they just need to help. They need help not to fall away. So we're going to continue reading in next few verses. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abides in you. And ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things and is truth and is no lie, And even as it has taught you, ye shall abide in him. So he's talking about the Holy Spirit here because he's saying that, you know, that. and again, this is the point where you don't even need to be taught by people if you don't want. I mean, if you really feel you can't trust a teacher, take the Bible, go in a room and read. (laughs) The Holy Spirit will show you. It's just that, you know, and that's one of the reasons why I personally always try, I try to be very honest about what the Bible says, because I don't want people to think, like if if there is a point in the Bible that people argue over, I'll point it out, because I don't want people to think that I'm lying to them. If I tell them it means this, and somebody says, well somebody else brought that up and said it meant something different, I don't want them to think I'm lying to them, I want them to know that there are arguments over what this might mean, but I personally have chosen the main, that it means this. Because I believe it's consistent. So some people they they do what's called um it's called presuppositionalists, which only a reformed Calvinist can come up with a word like that. <laughs> and that is you come to everything with the preconceived notion, basically. That like that God is real, the Bible is true, that and those are fine, but also that the tenets of like Calvinism, which is you know the tool up to define the uh, depravity there's um, a the tool up? it's uh, total depravity, uh, the whatever, the unelected of the saints and all this stuff. So when they're going through, they come with all of that baggage already. which again, I have no problem if somebody wants to start come and start with that the Bible's true, God is true, Christ. that's fine. I honestly didn't start there. I started with doubt and I arrived there. But if you want to come to the Bible with those, that's fine. The problem is, is like that Calvinism. When you start bringing other people's theology into it, unfortunately, you're gonna you're gonna slant the readings of things, and you're gonna think some things make sense even when in the Bible it's inconsistent. Because other verses will say something different. So again, that's I want to make sure that everybody knows that you know there's room. It's a big tent. There's room in there for people who don't all agree. And uh, t- verse 28 says. <clears throat> oh, sorry. See if I can put this page or not. There's, no, okay. <laughs> this Bible is weird. Sometimes it men, ends in the middle of a sentence. The page will end in the middle of a sentence. The other Bibles I've had never ended in the middle of a sentence. It always had the sentence end before the page. But anyways, <laughs> twenty-eight says, "And now, little children." Abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteous is born of him. This is one of these things where, again, this is an interesting one because people talk about when the second coming happens at the rapture. Uh, this was a church that I grew up in. They believed that because of the twenty-eighth verse. That basically, when the rapture happened, if you were sinning at the moment that it happened, either you wouldn't be taken, or that you know, it's essentially, it's a it's shameful because you know, it's like I guess it'd be like being walked in on or something. It'd be like the thing. So um, for us, it was if you were sinning at the moment the rapture happened. It, that's what they. That's what the church believed. And I don't necessarily think it means that so much as I think it refers to the fact of, I mean, you think about it, if we all appear before the judgment seat and suddenly all of our sins come out, it's going to be pretty bad if the very, they say, and the very last thing you ever did in your entire lifetime was cheating with your you know, secretary. You're going to be like, oh, you know, that's going to, oh, that was tough. Or whatever the case may be, the very last thing you ever did was when you stole that $20 bill out of the cash register. That's going to be that's going to be tough. It's going to be shameful. You're going to be like, oh, man. Even if you make it into heaven, you're still probably going to, at least for a moment there, you're going to be like, oh. So, you know, I think it's more of a reference to that, of just, you know, when Christ comes, we want to be prepared. And we want to be prepared in a sense that, like, that people will say, you know, when I go, when I go, I want to drag a few people with me. (laughs) You know, I want to drag a few people with me. So, I think it has more to do with that, that if you're living right, if you're doing right, then when it happens, you're going to be, other people are going to come up with you, rather than being ashamed, because maybe you got some people saved, and you show up right there, and you're the one that's got the sin. That's a little shameful as well. So, you know, and, it, and again, even that, there's this thing about the abiding language, because, you know, abide in Christ. In Mark 8, Christ talks about how that he says, for whoever is ashamed of me, and my words, this is an adulterous and sinful generation. The son of man will also be ashamed of him, when his father when he comes in great glory. So he's saying, you know, and that's one of the things we have. There's the Babylon Bee, which is like a fake newspaper online for Christians. Um, they make just comedy and stuff. They have a thing where they said that uh, it says like I can't remember what it was. I think it was teenage girl finds perfect balance of shame over her Christian belief, like. Talking about how that she's got just the right amount of embarrassment when she talks about her faith in front of her friends. And and I gotta say, we do that a lot, especially as children, even as adults. You're like, sometimes you'll be like, you know, whatever, oh, you believe in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. It's real, like, uh, it's, and it's one of those things where it's like, I mean, there are people out there who believe in aliens. Is that any, are they like, oh, you believe in aliens? Oh, yeah, of course I do. But they're not like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's more ridiculous, in my opinion, than believing in God, believing in Jesus. And you've got people that believe in all kinds of stuff. You know, people that, you know, whatever. I'm not bashing people who watch wrestling, but people watch wrestling all the time. They love it. And they love it. I loved it when I was a kid. I thought it was amazing. It was great. I love the storylines and stuff. But they're into that, and most people who are into it don't even show their, show any sort of, like, shame. Oh, you're into, yeah, I love wrestling, blah, 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 blah. You know, they don't cower over it, and yet we're talking about something that has to do with, you know, your your eternal life and somebody who's willing to die for you. And we're like, yeah, yeah, I believe in that. So there is something to be said for the shame aspect of it. That We really are, we, want, we don't want to be looked down upon by our peers. We really don't. We don't want to be looked down upon by our peers. Um, We'll go jump to Colossians 3, 4 real quick, which, so that'll be back to the left, probably about 20 pages or so. Eh, About 50 pages in my Bible. Colossians 3. And so with that, well, it says, you know, and now little children abide in him that that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. In the third chapter in the fourth verse, it says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And, Actually, if you go a little before that, we can actually see that. So it says, like, in the second verse, it says, Set your affections on things above, not on things of this earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Meaning the only reason why we have a true life, you know, it's that dead thing. We're dead in sin, but we're alive in Christ. The only reason why we're alive is Christ. So when he appears, we appear with him in glory immediately. When we see him coming, we're gone. We're gone. It's over. We're in glory. So there's no need to be ashamed. You know, there's no need to be ashamed at all. Because we got this promise. So, you know, in this last two verses where it says that, how it says, you know, and now little children. And again, he's saying little children because he's he wants these people to remember that the reason why little children, he's saying you're young. He's saying you should be older than this, but you're, you're young still in your faith. And abide in him that... When he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. And again, like I said in Mark 8, it does say, for whosoever is ashamed of me and my words in this generation, I will be ashamed of him when he comes to my Father's glory. So, you know, Remember we're we're to strong stand strong, to be consistent, to be persistent, to continue to abide in the love of Christ, because you know, he did all the, he really did do the hard part. We have to just continue to fight ourselves. He fought the world for us, we have to continue to just fight ourselves. So, you know, as we look at it, I think the entire the entirety of this chapter can be summed up in the term of righteousness. The whole chapter is righteousness. Christ is righteous. He wants us to be to try to mimic him and be as righteous as we can be. Candy. And so that's the second chapter of John here today and we'll pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for this time that we're together. Thank you for this night. As cold it is outside, it's actually a little warm on the inside here. So thank you for just everyone who wants to know more and wants to. Continue to live in your love and continue to grow in peace. Continue to mo- know more about your character. you watch over everybody, no matter where they are, no matter where they're going, no matter what they're doing, they will have safety and security and know that you are there close by. That's for all these things in your holy and precious name, Jesus Christ.